السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Someone can just quickly give me a sound check, please, uh, as I begin. Thank you very much, appreciated. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wal-aqibatu lil-muttaqeen. Wal-a'udwana illa ala al-zalimeen. Wa-ashadu an la ilaha illa Allah wahdahu la sharika lahu ilahu al-awwalina wal-akhirin. Wa-ashadu anna nabiyyana muhammadan abduhu wa rasooluhu al-mustafa al-ameen. اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد. So welcome to another lesson for with Quranic progression and inshallah taala today we're going to continue with the tafsir of Surah Al-Fajr. Last week we covered I think about three or four verses of this surah in which Allah subhanahu wa taala after mentioning the beginning of the surah which consisted of a number of oaths as we know. And then the question that Allah Azza wa Jal posed concerning if people had the intellect to understand what those oaths signify, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will then go on to give a number of examples from the past nations about those people who didn't take heed of those oaths and signs from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Instead, they disbelieved in Allah and the messengers that were sent to them and they turned away from the path of Allah Azza wa Jal. So last week we took, and Allah Azza wa Jal will mention three different nations. Last week we took the first of those three nations in three verses in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the people of Ad. And we said that the people of Ad were the nation of the Prophet Hud alayhi salatu wasalam, and they come from Yemen. And Ad is considered to be one of the earliest nations that occurred or that that, uh, that, that appeared after the time of the Prophet Nuh alayhi salatu wasalam. So after the Prophet Nuh alayhi salam and the floods and so on, the Prophet Hud alayhi salam and his people Ad are considered to be one of the first nations to which a Prophet of Allah was then sent. And the people of Hud, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Alam tara kayfa fa'ala rabbuka bi'ad? Do you not see how your Lord dealt with what your Lord did with the people of Ad? And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions for them a description. He says, Iram. And we mentioned last week that the scholars of Tafsir differed as to what Iram referred to. Some of them said that it referred to a city and a place whether it's Damascus or Alexandria or some other place. And some of them said that it's, it's, it refers to a tribe within the people of Ad. So Ad is a bigger nation and the people of Iram were a segment or a, a tribe within that nation. And others from amongst the scholars of, um, of, of Tafsir said that Iram referred to an ancestor of Ad. So one of the forefathers of Ad, his name was Iram. And that's what it's referring to. And there were some other positions that we mentioned amongst the scholars of Tafsir as well. Allah Azza wa Jal calls them Iram and he says the Dhatil Imad. They were the people of lofty pillars. And again, that was something which the scholars of Tafsir then differed over concerning what it's referring to exactly. Some of them said that it refers to their strength because Allah Azza wa Jal, as we know, gave them a great deal of strength. And that is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us in these verses. That Allah Azza wa Jal gave them power, gave them strength, gave them ability. But none of that profited them nor did it benefit them when they turned away from Allah Azza wa Jal, nor did it help them when the punishment of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala came upon them. Others from amongst them said it refers to their height. So that al-imad, their lofty pillars, they're like lofty pillars, meaning that their height, it's referring to their height and, and how big they were in stature and size. And others said that it refers to the pillars, the physical pillars that they would have in their land that they would use to build with and that they would have in their tents and in their buildings in order to support their structures and because of their size 
and because they denoted the strength that those people had being able to uh, to construct such pillars of height Allah Azza refers to that and that was a position that Imam Tabari Ta'ala favored Iramadhat al-Imad al-Ladheena taghaw fil bilad Sorry, Iramadhat al-Imad al-Lati lam yukhlaq mithluha fil bilad And Allah Azza wa then goes on to say the likes of which was never constructed or never created before in the lands And the scholars of Tafsir differed as to what the which refers to or that the likes of which, what's it referring to? Is it referring to one position of tafsir is that it's referring to the people of Ad? So the people of Ad, nothing like them came before because of their strength and their power and their abilities and skills and so on. And others said that we refer to the structures, the imad, the lofty pillars. And both of those positions, we had different scholars of tafsir referring to and choosing as well. But either way, the, the, the crux of those verses is that this is one of the nations that Allah Azza wa brings to our minds and it is said because the, as we as we mentioned previously as well because the Arabs and the Quraysh were aware of the people of Ad and they knew of the people of Hud because they were Yemenis they were from the Arabian Peninsula and they were people who the Arabs were familiar with and we know that the Arabs of Quraysh had trade caravans and business dealings and travels towards Yemen and towards Syria or what we call a sham and so therefore they went to both of those places and they interacted with their people and they knew them and so on and so forth and so therefore them knowing about the people of Ad them being familiar with the people of Ad is something which is not only possible and very logical and probably very common because people often tend to uh, you know send down from generation to generation stories and and history and and especially in in, in oral types of um, you know places where the oral tradition is stronger than a written tradition because of the general population and so on, these stories are passed down verbally and orally from generation to generation. So this week, inshallah ta'ala, we come on to verse number 9 then. And now Allah Azza wa speaks about the second of the three groups of people that Allah Azza wa is going to refer to in this surah. And that is the people of Thamud. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَثَمُودَ الَّذِينَ جَابُوا الصَّخْرَ In the translation of Professor Abdul Halim and the Thamud who hewed into the rocks in the valley. And Sahih International and with Thamud who carved out the rocks in the valley. And Mufti Taqi and how he dealt with the people of Thamud who had carved out the rocks in the valley of Qura. And uh, Muhsin Khan and with Thamud people who hewed out rocks in the valley to make dwellings. So the people of Thamud, as we mentioned before, because we, we kind of touched upon them when we were doing the tafsir of Surah Al-Shams, Allah Azza wa mentions, كَذَّبَتْ ثَمُودُ بِتَغْوَاهَا in that surah. And so we've mentioned uh, the people of Thamud somewhat generally. The people of Thamud are the nation of the Prophet Salih and they are mentioned a number of times in the Quran also like Ad. And often in the Quran when one is mentioned, the other is followed generally speaking, although there are exceptions to that rule. Sometimes Ad is mentioned by itself and sometimes Thamud is mentioned by itself. But generally speaking, in the vast majority of the surahs of the Quran, when one nation is mentioned, the other one is usually mentioned before it. And that's because we know that Allah Azza told us that the people of Thamud came very soon after the people of Ad. And Allah Azza mentions this in Surah Al-Araf when he says, Salih says to his people, And remember when your Lord made your successes to the people of Ad. So they came from the people of Ad and they were familiar with the people of Ad and they came after the people of Ad. And so the people of, of, of Salih are known as Thamud. And we mentioned before that Thamud and its area was a place that they had very little water in the middle of the desert. 
But at the same time, Allah Azzawajal gave them abilities and He gave them certain skills. And from those skills is one that Allah Azzawajal highlights here. And whereas the people of, of Ad are mentioned in three verses, and as we will see after this verse, the people of Pharaoh, which is the third of the three nations that are mentioned in this surah, they are also mentioned in more than one verse. The people of Thamud are mentioned in a single verse. And it may be, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, because the people of Thamud, their sign is, is very clear. Uh, it is very clear and apparent to all, because their dwellings are still something which exists until this time. So the people of Thamud, as we know, they live in uh, they live in the area that is uh, what what we what today is called Madain Salih, and it's a whole area in the northern part of Saudi Arabia. And the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, when he was going on his way to the to the place of Tabuk, to the battle of Tabuk, he passed by this, and he actually said to the the companions who were with him, hasten through this area, for we are entering into a valley that has been cursed. And that's because obviously it is a place of, of punishment. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned the main thing that these people were known for, and that is their ability to carve mountain dwellings, to go into the rocks and hew into it these amazing dwellings. And just as the people of Ad, Allah Azzawajal mentions them as people of strength because of their lofty pillars that they were able to build, Likewise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about the strength and the power and the ability of Thamud, this time also because of what they were able to do with the, uh, you know, with the landscape that they had. And that is what they were able to do in terms of building their, their houses and their palaces and their dwellings in the, in, the, in the rocks and in the sides of mountains. Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah said, concerning this verse, he says, يعني ثمود قوم صالح. These are the people of, the pe- the people of Thamud, the people of Salih. As Allah says elsewhere in the Quran, they would carve out of the mountains their houses. And it's not difficult, you know, just to Google these images, they're still very much available. And they had the ability to do this, and only Allah and only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best how they were able to do it. Mujahid ta'ala said something very similar. They were able to go and carve into the mountains houses for themselves. Al-Qatada Rahimahullah Ta'ala said something very similar. They were able to carve into the rock and they were able to shape things into the rock, meaning to make a dwelling from it. Uh, Imam al-Bukhari, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he said that the word Jabu, Jabu, the word Jabu, he said, comes from making an incision or a cut, just as we call the pocket Jab. Right? He says that they come from the same wording. It is the pocket of the Jab. So you, to cut across something or to cut through something, that in the Arabic language comes from the root word of jab or jab. And that is why it is said for the person who, who, who crosses a land and traverses it, they say, This is the person who went across an expanse, he went across a desert. And they say, He went across, meaning he cut across a whole swathe of land. And it means that he passed over it. And that's what Imam Al-Qurtubi then picks up on and he says, uh, this is the meaning of the word jabu. In Arabic language, it means to cut, to make an incision. And that is why the pocket in the thobe or in, in the shirt is called jab in Arabic language. It comes from the same word because you have a cloth and then they make an incision into it or they cut into it to uh, to give that. And that is the meaning of what the people of Thamud did within mountains. They cut into it and they carved into it. So these were not dwellings that were added onto the mountains, not external to the mountains, whereby the mountain is still there and then they start building 
uh, you know, just in front of the mountain. This is actually carving into the mountain and not only slowly or slightly like a small little cave. These are massive dwellings, very high and very deep and something which is amazing to see. And Ibn Qutaybah in his, in his uh, book on, on Gharib al-Quran, on the unfamiliar words of the Quran and likewise as a judge, also they say very much the similar, uh, very much similar to what Imam al-Bukhari and Imam al-Qurtubi and all of them say. Uh, and Imam al-Tabari in his tafsir, he says, these are the people of Thamud who are able to take into the rocks, uh, to cut into the rocks and make for themselves houses that they would be able to enter in, as Allah mentions in a number of places in the Quran. And then he goes on to also mention the linguistic uh, point that the Arabs say when someone says Jaba or Jawba or Jaib, all of it comes from making an incision, making a cutting, and that is where it comes from here. And Ibn Atiyah he said, he says, and this is the position of the majority of the scholars of tafsir, many of the scholars of tafsir, and that is that the meaning of Jabu Sakhar means that they cut into, that they hewed into, that they carved into the mountains, and they made for themselves dwellings, Bilwad, in the valley. And that is the valley that they lived in, and it's the same valley that the Prophet of Allah passed by or passed through as he was traveling with his companions towards the Battle of Tabuk, as we mentioned before. Uh, Al-Tha'labi in his, in his tafsir, he called it uh, Biwad al-Qura. He called it Biwad al-Qura. So he said that the name of this place was the Valley of Villages or the Valley of Towns. And that's why he gave that name. And I think that's why uh, Mufti Taqi in his tafsir, in his translation, he puts that in parentheses uh, to show that that's the, maybe that's the position that he also chose Allahu Alam. Um, but some of the scholars also mentioned, so the vast majority said that this carving refers to the mountains that they uh, carved into. But some of them also said, meaning some of the scholars of tafsir, and they are the minority, they said, They said that the way that they were able to extract water from that place that they were living in because of the scarcity of, of water that was available was that they would carve into rocks and stones and they would draw water out of it. And we know that there is moisture sometimes that you can find within rocks. There is moisture and water that can be found within certain types of, of rock formations and so on. He says that that is what is being referred to and this too is the action of a group of people who have an enormous amount of strength to be able to, to dig in and, and, to, and to carve into rock formations and to extract water from them shows a great deal of skill and a great deal of strength as well. But that is not the position of the majority. The majority uh, mention the positions of the Salaf that we mentioned, the likes of Ibn Abbas and Mujahid and Qatada and Al-Tabari and Al-Bukhari and, and many of those scholars alayhim and Al-Qurtubi says something very similar and he mentions uh, he mentions the different places that people said that it was what is called was it called the Wadi was it called the Wadi Al-Qura whatever it's referring to in terms of its name it is uh, it is still the place that we know of today uh, where it is said that the people of Salih alayhi salatu wasalam existed and remember not for the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasalam maybe it would have been difficult to say for sure that this is the place where they were but it seems to be that that is the place because of the hadith that we mentioned before of the Prophet Allah then moves on in verse number 10 to the third of the three nations now that are going to be mentioned. So as we mentioned previously, the Ad and the Thamud, because of their location in Arabia, they were known to the Arabs, they were known to the Quraysh. And so the story of Hud, the story of Salih, the story of Ad and Thamud is somewhat familiar to them. Even if they don't know the details, perhaps that Allah Azza wa gives to us here in the Quran, 
uh, they knew of generally this group of people that were wiped out and destroyed and the Arabs generally were people who had a lot of superstition in them and that is why one of the things that the Prophet ﷺ did when he came with Islam was he nullified and removed much of the suspicions that those people had for they were people who were very superstitious they had superstitions concerning you know, the way birds flew, the way rocks fell the way uh, you know the way someone uh, someone did something or didn't do something or the way the the sun eclipsed or the moon eclipsed they had a lot of superstitions within their belief system and so the prophet sallam you know like he he put a lot of that away and he dismissed a great deal of that if not all of it the arabs therefore knew of something that happened to ad and thamud now whether they believed that that was a punishment from Allah, whether they thought that it was something else that existed, Allah knows best. But the point is that it is something which they recognized and that they knew of because of them being Arabs and these tribes and nations also being Arabs. But in verse number 10 now, we don't have an Arab tribe that is being mentioned or an Arab, na- Arab nation, but rather the people of Pharaoh, which is the Pharaoh of the Prophet Musa alayhi But that is also something which is understood because as we know, the Arabs had a lot of dealings with the people of uh, the Jews of Medina, for example, the Jews of Medina, because the people of Mecca and Medina generally had uh, relations between themselves. They had blood and they had relationships and 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 and, uh, and closeness between them. So for them to know about the Jewish tribes there and to understand them and to hear from them, overheard certain things about them, about the Prophet Musa والسلام, and Pharaoh, is also not something which is you know stretching the imagination. It's something which is very possible and something which is likely to have happened, and that is why. The scholars of Tafsir mention that Allah mentions here as the third of the three nations, the people of Pharaoh. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in, in verse number 10, therefore, uh, in the translation of, of uh, Professor Abdul Harim, and the mighty and powerful Pharaoh. So in all of these verses, Allah at the beginning says, Alam tara fa'ala rabbuk. Do you not see what your Lord did to add? Then in verse 9, wa thamud al meaning, and do you not see also what your Lord did with Thamud, who were able to carve out rocks in the mountains? Now in verse 10, meaning, and did you not also see what your Lord did with Pharaoh, Dil Autad? Uh, Professor Abdul Halim translates Dil Autad as being mighty and powerful. Sahih International says, and Pharaoh, owner of the stakes. Mufti Taqi, and Pharaoh, the man of the stakes, and Muhsin Khan, and with Pharaoh, who had stakes to torture men by binding them to the stakes. So those are the translations that we have. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions Pharaoh. And we know Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the Pharaoh of the Prophet Musa alayhi salatu wasalam. And we know that Pharaoh is a title, not a name. So it is the, uh, you know, it is the title that is given to the rulers of the Egyptians. They are called Pharaohs. And we know that anyway, generally from history, there were many, many Pharaohs. But obviously the Pharaoh that has been referred to in the Quran is the Pharaoh of Musa alayhi salatu wassalam. Now the Pharaoh of Musa alayhi salatu wassalam, uh, you know, in, in, in generally in, in, in biblical history, uh, it is said that there were two Pharaohs in the time of Musa alayhi salatu wassalam, a father and a son. The father is the one who takes in, uh, who takes in uh, Musa alayhi salatu wassalam as a baby and he grows up under him and so on. And the Pharaoh that will become the Pharaoh that becomes the enemy of Musa alayhi salam, is like a brother to Musa salam. So Musa salam is essentially a prince of Egypt. He grows up with this other man who is like his brother because he is adopted into the family of the Pharaoh. And so he becomes brother with him. That, that's, that, that brother of, of Musa salam who is like a brother to him, who is actual son of the living Pharaoh, of the old Pharaoh, 
when the old Pharaoh dies, he is the one that becomes the Pharaoh that will then become the arch enemy of Musa alayhi salatu wasalam. That seems to be very different to the Muslim narrative, and Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best. Allah, the Prophet never explicitly mentioned the name of the Pharaohs, and so it's not explicitly mentioned in that way. But if you look at the general verses of the Quran and the general narrations that we do have, whether it's narrations in the Sunnah or whether it is the statements of the companions and others, it seems to be, and Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best, that it is the same Pharaoh. That it is the same Pharaoh from beginning to end. That it is from beginning to end. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. That is not explicitly mentioned, as I said. And so there is always a chance, and Allah knows best. But perhaps there is still always a chance that it could be that it was two different Pharaohs. But what seems more likely, at least from my reading and from my research and from looking into just generally the context and the way that the the way that the story is framed around Pharaoh, because Pharaoh often refers to what Musa alayhi salam did before he became a prophet, before he left and he went to Madian. You did this and you were here and you did this and so on. And it's also mentioned, for example, in some narrations that uh, you know Musa alayhi salatu salam, when he comes as a baby, when he's taken as a baby to Pharaoh, he does certain things to him or he, and Pharaoh looks into him and he sees certain things about him and so on. And so it seems that the story, the narrative, always revolves around the same individual. Always revolves around the same individual and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Allah azza wa jal knows best. Either way, Pharaoh is, is the title that is given just as uh, you know, Hiraqal, uh, or, or sorry, or, 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 or Najashi is the title that's given to the Abyssinian leader, and Hiraqal is the title given to the, the Byzantine Roman emperor, and so on and so forth. Pharaoh is the title given to the leader of the Egyptians of, of Egypt. But this is only the Pharaoh, So, but when in the Quran and the Sunnah you hear the word Pharaoh, it's referring to the Pharaoh of Musa wasalam, because the Quran and the Sunnah don't really have any interest and don't really speak about any other Pharaoh. What they did, how long they were there for, anything else is not really relevant to the narrative of the Quran. So Pharaoh, Allah Azza wa describes him here as Dil Awtad. Dil Awtad. Qatada rahimullah ta'ala said Dil Awtad means or is referring to structures. And Abu Rafi' said that Pharaoh used to have a number of stakes. The Utad, he says, refers to a number of stakes. And he would use these stakes to punish people. And from the people that he punished upon those stakes was his own wife. When she believed in Musa والسلام, it is said that she was uh, tied to these stakes uh, and, and she was tortured in, in that way. Other narrations say that she was obviously thrown off a mountain and so on. So there are different narrations. But anyway, this is... Uh, this is um, this is one of them that is mentioned by Abu Rafi'. Al-Imam Al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, Allah Azza wa is saying here, do you not see what we did to Pharaoh, who was the owner of Awtad? And then he says, and the scholars of Tafsir differed as to what the Awtad are referring to. So the first of those positions was that the Awtad referred to his armies. Awtad means his junood, his armies, his soldiers. And so that is what is being referred to here. So the Awtad, Al-Watad generally linguistically means a stake, right? a stake, a wooden pole or a, or a metal pole. That is what is being referred to generally, but he says here, it refers to Al-Junood, it refers to his, um, it refers to his uh, armies. And it is said that this was one of the positions of Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhumah. And it is very possible that the companions or whoever says this position, means that the soldiers used the stakes as a means of their weapons, as one of their weapons in war, and one of the weapons that they would use to torture other people, and Allah knows best. But either way, they say that it's referring to the soldiers. And others said, it's referring to the stakes, because those are the stakes that they would use to punish people. Those are the stakes that are used, 
that they would use to punish people. And this was the statement of Mujahid, rahimahullah ta'ala. Another said, rather they were, uh, they were structures that they would play in and that would give them shade in the sun. They were structures that they would play about in and that would give them shade in the sun. And we will mention this uh, slightly more in detail in a short while. And this was the position of scholars like Qatada, rahimahullah ta'ala. Another said that it was something which they used as an implement of torture. It was a way that they would punish people, that they would torture people. And this was the statement of Saeed ibn Jubayr, rahimahullah ta'ala. But it seems very similar to, uh, to me anyway, uh, that, it would, that it is similar to the statement of Mujahid, rahimahullah ta'ala. But even Imam al-Tabari mentions them separately, and that is why I have mentioned them separately as well. Imam al-Tabari then says, And the strongest of these positions in my, in my view he says the most likely of these positions to be correct. He says what seems most likely in terms of the correct opinion is that these are stakes. That the outad are stakes, whether from wood or whether from some type of metal. And he says and that is because that is what is known from the meaning of a outad. And we know that this is from the methodologies. If he sees that something has another meaning or this verse or this word is being used in another context in the Quran or the Sunnah, he will use that context to make tafsir here. Or if he sees that the companions agreed upon a methodology or they agreed upon a statement or they agreed upon a position, then he would say that is what is being referred to here. Or if not, then he often goes back to the linguistic use of these words because the Quran, as Allah says, was revealed in a clear Arabic tongue. And so therefore what the Arabs understand these words to mean generally are the words that they should be considered to be used. And it, it seems possible that they could be, as we said, uh, that the, the position of it being stakes and the position of it being soldiers, both of them can be reconciled, I think, fairly easily in the sense that both are uh, weapons that are being used by Pharaoh. So whether it's that soldiers use them to torture people and to hurt people and to oppress people, or whether it's referring to the actual poles themselves that again are used to torture people, both seem to be similar and Allah Azza wa knows best. And uh, Imam al-Tabari continues and he says, and they are called Otad because they were used to punish people, as Sa'id ibn Jubair and Abu Rafi' and others said. And it is possible that they were also used to play around with. So when you have a pole, you can use it for a number of things. And one of the things he says that they could possibly use them for is to play with, that they could use them in sport or that they would use them in some type of entertainment. The teacher of our teachers, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti has a, an interesting view on this particular verse as to what the meaning of Otad is. And he mentions the positions of the scholars like all the ones that we mentioned before that Imam Al-Tabari also mentions before whether it's referring to you know soldiers or it's referring to a pole or whatever it's referring to. And then he mentions the position that it is said that they were structures that people would use to seek shade and that they would use for their entertainment and so on. And he says, And what seems to be most likely and Allah knows best is that this is the correct position. And that is because they were extremely large and able to be seen. And he says, and that is what we would today call the pyramids of Egypt. So he considers the Dil-Awtad to refer to the pyramids of, of Egypt that we are very familiar with in our time. That is what he says that they're referring to. That the Pharaoh were people who built these structures. Now the thing that you see between 
the story of Ad and Thamud and Pharaoh, therefore, the, the common theme, if you like, the common pattern that's recurring between the three is that Allah Azza for all three of them is referring to elements of their strength, elements of power that they had. And He's doing that by, by, by showing subhanahu wa ta'ala the things that Allah Azza gave them the ability to construct and make and the power and the strength that Allah Azza endowed them with. So whether it's Ad, with their, you know, with their structures and with their ability to build lofty towers and their ability to conquer nations, whether it's Thamud and their ability to carve into rock and stone and mountains and make out dwellings and houses and palaces for themselves, or whether it is Pharaoh, and it's referring to their strength, whether it's their physical strength of harming people and torturing them, and as we know, they enslaved the whole of Bani Israel, and so therefore that, that is also a sign of their of their of their batsh and their transgression and their oppression and their strength and their might, or whether it's referring to the structures that they built, which is the structures of the the, the pyramids as Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Ta'ala is choosing, all of them have a simply a single theme, and that is that all of them were given strength. All of them had this strength and power that Allah Azza endowed them with. But going back to the statement of Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Ta'ala, he says, and the reason why I think that they are the uh, the pyramids of Egypt as they are known today, he says it's for a number of, 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 of reasons. He says the first of them is, uh, he says that if you were to look at the very top of a, of a pyramid, it would resemble the top of a stake, meaning that it, is, uh, that it is similar to a stake. And that is because of the way that the pyramid obviously meets very, very much at the top. And if you were to see him from afar, all you would see is the very top that may resemble a stake. He says that that is the first reason. He says the second reason is the one that I just mentioned, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he speaks about the people of Thamud, he's speaking about their power and their ability to move rocks. And when Allah Azza wa is referring to the people of Aad, he's also referring to their ability to build these lofty pillars that people could see and that they would be impressed with. So he says that it goes along, therefore, with the context of these verses and the general theme of what Allah Azza wa is mentioning, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to structures here as well. So the lofty pillars of Aad are a structure. The carved dwellings of Thamud are structures. So likewise here he says, if you were to go for some other opinion that it's a stake or something else, it's not a structure. A stake is a pole that you put in the ground. Or if it's soldiers, they're not structures, they are people and humans. So therefore he says that it seems to me that that is what is being referred to. Because Allah Jal, for example, in the story of Thamud, he says, refers to their ability to carve into, into mountains, which shows that they were, they, were, they were able to do what they were able to do. And likewise here it shows the, the, the power that, or the ability and the strength of the people of Pharaoh. That they could have moved what were massive rocks and stones because the, the pyramids are, are massive structures as we know. And they would be extremely difficult to, to build and, to, and, to, and the rocks are, are extremely uh, big and so on. He says that also shows a level of strength and power and might. And then he says, and the third reason why I say this is because saying that it is the is it is the uh, pyramids of Egypt is similar to saying that the dwellings of Thamud. The dwellings of Thamud is something which every generation, every time, every every group of people can continue to see over the generations and the centuries. They can still see that sign of Allah Azza wa amongst them. So likewise, the pyramids of Egypt are still visible. They can still be seen. They can still be visited. And so therefore, they too are a sign of Allah Azza wa that people can see in the sense that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has left them as a sign for people to reflect on and to see. And he says, And that is more likely than to make people reflect and to make people uh, people contemplate. بِأَنَّ مَنْ أَهْلَكَ تِلْكَ الْأُمَمْ قَادِرٌ عَلَىٰ إِهْلَاكِ الْمُكَذِّبِينَ مِنْ قُرَيْشٍ وَغَيْر
that the one who destroyed those nations, despite these powers that they had and these abilities and these strengths that they had, the the, the Egyptians with their pyramids and Thamud especially with their dwellings, then he also, subhanahu wa ta'ala, if he can destroy all of them, despite that power and strength that they had, then surely he is all able, subhanahu wa ta'ala, to, to destroy those who rejected or and refused to believe from the people of Quraysh and from other than them. This was the position of Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin rahimahullah ta'ala and as we know Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin is a fairly contemporary scholar in the sense that he only passed away in the last 50, 60 odd years ago. So it's not from the very early scholars. He is, according to my the research that I did for this tafsir class and, and it may be incorrect, uh, but from what I could tell and from what I could see from the major books of tafsir that I refer to, he seems to be the only one who took this position that is referring to the, uh, that is referring to uh, that's referring to the, the pyramids of Egypt and he's not alone in, in, in this kind of, uh, of thinking in the sense that there are other scholars who said other things about other verses not particularly this verse but other verses of the Quran where they said that it's referring to something which people can still see in our time however you know Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best but I always think that it is safe and Allah knows best to take the general position of the earliest scholars of Islam uh, and for them to say that it's Otah that is referring to the stakes and the poles that were being used seems to be something which is very common amongst the early scholars of Islam from the very time of the Tabi'een, from the early time of the companions and their students all the way down to the likes of Habib bin Kathir ta'ala, and others who then followed them as well. But anyway, I thought that it would be interesting to bring this uh, as a statement to show you that there are, uh, that there are, uh, that the, the, the Sheikh Muhammad al took it to uh, that position in terms of tafsir of what the meaning is. So therefore, Dil Awtad, uh, Allah knows best, seems to be referring to, again, the might and power of Pharaoh, but in form of the stakes that they had, in that they would use to punish people, or that the soldiers would use to punish people, whether it's Bani Israel, or whether later on it's the people that believed in Musa alayhi salatu wasalam, from the, from the few people that believed from the people of Pharaoh and so on, and all of that is, is, is very possible and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Allah Azza wa in, in verse number 11, he then goes on and he says, still referring to the people of, of Pharaoh, All of them committed excesses in their lands. Uh, and this is now not referring just to the people of Pharaoh, rather it is referring to all three of the past generations. So it's not just referring to Pharaoh, it's referring to all three of the past nations that have been mentioned, Ad, Thamud, and Pharaoh. So Allah says, those, meaning all of them, all of those that have been previously mentioned, Ad, Thamud, and Pharaoh. All of them committed excesses in their lands. Each one in their time, in their place, in their own way, they transgressed. They disbelieved in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they transgressed and they oppressed and they committed a great deal of corruption upon the earth. Ash-Shawkani says that the Alladina, the Mosul, the Alladina, refers to Ad and Thamud and Pharaoh. Every single one of these nations in their own lands, they transgressed and they oppressed. comes from the word Tughyan means to overstep the boundaries. And this was the position of Al-Qurtubi and Ibn Al-Jawzi and, and Shaykh Abdul Rahman Al-Sa'di جميعاً, and others. And, and the, I didn't come across anyone that differed with this. That the Alladina now is referring to these couple of verses now that will come. This verse 11, 12, 13. They are referring to all of the three nations now. 
So it may be understood, sometimes people understand it to mean that it's referring to the previous or the most recently mentioned, which would be Pharaoh. But actually what it's referring to, uh, what it's referring to is all of them, right? All of them, meaning all of those three nations that have been mentioned before. And Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, said something very similar. He said, الَّذِينَ تَغَوْفِ الْبِلَادِ refers to الَّذِينَ refers to Aad and Thamud and Pharaoh. Refers to the people of Aad and Thamud and Pharaoh. And Tagaw means that they went over and above the, the limits that Allah Azza wa has sent for them, had set for them. Rather, they transgressed against their Lord and they did so by having kufr, by, by disbelieving in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and by the other oppression that they then committed. Fil bilad in their lands, meaning in the lands in which they were on. So, for example, Pharaoh would be Egypt and Aad would be in Yemen. And Thamud would be in what we call Madain Salih today. And Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala said something very similar. These people oppressed, they transgressed, they overstepped the boundaries and they committed a great deal of oppression and corruption upon the earth and a great harm towards others. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying about these three, three nations. And this is clearly, you know, in the, in the first instance for the benefit of the people of Quraysh in the time of the Prophet Because the Quraysh, as we know, thought that they were stronger and better than others. They thought that they had the power over the Muslims in, in the sense of their physical ability, their financial ability, their social ability was far greater than what the Prophet had, as well as all of the believers that followed him, his companions, his followers. And so therefore they had a great deal of haughtiness and arrogance and pride. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving them here a number of examples of nations that were far stronger than Quraysh. Because even though Quraysh considered themselves to be the premier you know, Arab tribe in Arabia, like in the Arabian Peninsula, but the Arabs generally were not really a superpower of the world. They didn't have anything amazing you know, in terms of their claim to fame, if you like. So whether it's the people of Taif, or the people of Medina, or the people of Mecca, or the people of, of Najd, or any of those Arab tribes that we have, and there were a good deal of them and a great number of them, none of them had anything amazing in terms of something to shout about, or something which they could say that made them extremely strong. And that is why we know that the, the Romans, the, the Byzantine Romans that were in the Sham, didn't consider the, the Arabs and the Quraysh to be a threat. And the Persians in Persia, they didn't consider the Arabs to be a threat either. Because neither them, neither the, the, the Byzantine Romans nor the Persians saw them as having anything that was worthy of taking or conquering or saw them as a threat that they would come and cause them problems in their own kingdoms and in their own empires. So Allah by giving these examples of Ad and Thamud and Pharaoh is saying that these three nations were superpowers of their time. They were people of extraordinary strength and ability of their time. And they had the capability of doing things that you can still see until today, especially for in that context, the people of Thamud, because that is what the Quraysh and the Arabs would have known first and foremost. The Quraysh and the Arabs generally didn't travel as far down to places like Egypt until after uh, you know, the conquest of Islam and so on, um, or the coming of Islam and so on, uh, with the exception, obviously, of the people who went to Abyssinia in, in those migrations. But generally speaking, it wasn't the common thing that the Arabs did in terms of traveling south. They would go towards Yemen on one side and they would go to Asham on the other side of Arabia. But they wouldn't really travel anywhere else. But for Thamud and their people, it is a sign that they can see. And despite the power of Ad and the power of Thamud and the power of Pharaoh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed them all. And that is what um, 
At-Tabari, and Ibn Kathir, and others say that Allah Azza wa Jalla is referring or, or telling the people of, um, or telling the people of, uh, you know, telling the people of Quraysh to think about and to reflect upon in terms of their own station, in terms of their own abilities, and how Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has all power and capability over everyone and everything. In verse number twelve, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala then says, "فَأَكْثَرُوا فِيهَا الْفَسَادِ," speaking about these people who committed a great deal of oppression and transgression, فَأَكْثَرُوا فِيهَا الْفَسَادِ, and they spread corruption there, meaning in the land. As Sudhi said, through sins, like through generally just through sins and disobedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Ibn al-Jawzi said, through killing and sins, through murder and through sins. And Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala said something very similar. He said, through their oppression and through their harm. فَأَكْثَرُوا فِيهَا الْفَسَادِ They caused a great deal of corruption by killing their, uh, the believers, by causing harm to them by causing corruption upon the earth, by not letting others worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by transgressing against the commands of Allah azza wa jal and His laws, by doing everything that they were prohibited from doing. They caused a great deal of corruption upon the earth. And that shows that from the greatest corruption that a person or that a group of people can cause upon the earth is the corruption of disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there are many different forms of corruptions that they can be seen in many ways. Now clearly, things like stealing, things like murdering, things like... Those are parts of the corruption because they come under that general framework and that general umbrella of disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But Allah azza wa also refers to as corruption, right? Part of corruption is disbelieving in the commands of Allah, disbelieving in the laws of Allah. Because one of the ways that those other type forms of corruption become rampant and they become widespread and they become, uh, you know, they become embedded within communities and societies is because the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are being neglected and ignored. They're not being abided by, they're not being implemented. And so that is what Allah Azza wa Jal is referring to. And similar to it is where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran refers to shirk as the greatest form of oppression. In shirk It is the greatest form of oppression. Even though when we would say oppression to one another, the first thing that would probably come to our mind is the oppression that a ruler may commit against his people. Or that someone in power may commit towards someone who's not in power or someone who's wealthy may do to someone who's poor or so on and so on. Those are the forms of oppression that we find within our minds. But rather the greatest oppression is the oppression of shirk. Because that is withholding the rights of Allah. Because that is what essentially oppression is. It is to withhold rights. And it is to it is to trample upon the rights of others. And the greatest of rights ever is the right that Allah should be worshipped alone. So when people withhold that right from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it becomes therefore the greatest oppression as well. And that is why in the verse in the Quran, in the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, uh, I believe it is Aisha or Abu Bakr when they said Allah says those who believe and they don't foul their iman with oppression they don't they don't mix their iman with oppression so therefore therefore how you know the narrator said or messenger of Allah how can one of us have belief and not commit oppression everyone oppresses Right? Generally speaking, impression in terms of harming someone else or withholding a right that you you know of someone else, most the vast majority of people will fall into this. Uh, the Prophet said that is not the meaning of the dhulm here. That's not the dhulm that's being referred to here. That's not the oppression that Allah is referring to here. Rather, the oppression here is the one that we find that Allah says in the shirk It is the oppression of shirk, meaning those who believe and then don't taint their belief with disbelief and with shirk. In verse number 13, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says, فَصَبَّ عَلَيْهِمْ رَبُّكَ سَوْطَ عَذَابِ 
your Lord, let a scourge of punishment loose upon them. That's the translation of Professor Abdul Halim. Uh, the translation of, let me just see if I can pull up. Uh, Muhsin Khan says, so your Lord poured on them different kinds of severe torment. Mufti Taqi, so your Lord let loose on them the whip of torment. And Sahih International, so your Lord poured upon them in a scourge of punishment. I think very similar in terms of what's being referred to. The word sawt, fasabba alihim. Sabba means to pour. Right, pour. Generally speaking, it is sabba. So when you pour water, it is called sabba al-ma. Right, that you pour something. Sabba alihim rabbuka sawt. And the word sawt in the classical Arabic language refers to a whip. Refers to a whip. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, literally speaking, is saying, if we just take the literal translation, so your Lord poured upon them a whip of punishment. Right, a whip or a stick that you beat with, right? that is called a salt. A whip or a stick that is beaten with, that is called salt. Al-Hassan al-Basri ta'ala said that he would, he would recite this verse and he would say, إِنَّ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ أَسْوَاطًا كَثِيرًا بِصَوْتٍ مِّنْهَا That Allah has many whips and many sticks of punishment. He punished these people with one of those whips. So whether it's the people of Pharaoh or the people of Ad or the people of Thamud, because their punishments differ. Each one was destroyed in a different way. Their punishment differs one from another. So he would say that Allah has many different sticks of punishment or whips of punishment. He chose whichever one he wanted for those people. And Qatada said, Everything that Allah punishes with is a stick from the sticks of his punishment or it is a form from the forms of his punishment. So the word sawt adab according to the scholars of the Salaf, refers to forms and types of punishment. And we will mention why the word salt is used here in a short while. Uh, Al-Qurtubi, he says that the meaning is that they were given each one their due of punishment. And it is said the severity of punishment. Because amongst the Arabs, the worst physical punishment that you could give was the punishment of a whip or a stick. Meaning that if you were to go up from like a, maybe a slap and a punch and they would go up in terms of severity, the harshest thing that you can use to, to, to beat someone with would be a stick. So that is why he says that the word sawta adab is used because it was considered to be the most for, severe form of physical punishment that a person could inflict upon another. Al-Farra, uh, one of the scholars of the Arabic language, he said, this is a statement, Sawta Adab, is a statement that the Arabs often say to refer to any and every type of punishment. And the asal of this, the origin of this, is because the stick or the whip was a common form of punishment that they would use. As we know, they would whip people and they would lash people. So then it became a term used to denote every type of punishment because that was the worst that they could inflict upon someone. And others from amongst them said it means a, a punishment that affects the skin and the blood. It affects the flesh and the blood. It affects the flesh and the blood because when a person is lashed and when a person is hit with a stick severely over and over again, as we know, it is something which not only physically hurts the, the skin, but it draws out blood as well. Ibn Atiyah, he said that Allah used the word salt here because it is borrowed from the Arabic language. It was a way of them referring to punishment and also because the lash or the whip or the stick of punishment has an added meaning and that is that there is a recurring element to it so when you say someone was lashed 
someone was beaten by a stick, it normally means that it was more than once, that it was recurring, that it was the number of whips, the number of lashes, the number of times that they were beaten by the stick. And that's why Ibn Atiyah Ta'ala says that the word salt is used here. That is a nice tafsir, it's a nice understanding of this word because it means that they weren't just punished once. That punishment that they had in this world was extremely severe. It wasn't just something which was easy for them. It was a continuous form of punishment until they died. And on Yawm Al-Qiyamah and in their graves, obviously, that punishment continues as well. And as Shawkani Rahimullah Ta'ala said, Sawt Adab means the due of punishment. And it is mentioned as Sawt because it is something which will affect them in this world in terms of the great punishment, but it is something which they will continue to be punished with on the Day of Judgment in the next life and for the rest of eternity. Meaning that it isn't just this one small punishment, but like the lash, it comes and comes and comes and comes. But obviously when it comes to Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala's punishments, it takes different forms. The forms of the dunya of punishment different to the form of the grave in terms of punishment, different to the form of what will be on Yawm Al-Qiyamah in the Akhirah, in the fire of hell, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala save us from that. And Imam Al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says, therefore, concluding everything that we've said before, so from last week's lesson, from the people of Ad and their description, to the people of Thamud and their description, the people of Pharaoh and their description, and then how Allah Azzawajal refers to each one of them in terms of their destruction and so on, Imam al-Tabari, he says that Allah is telling his Prophet وسلم, the manner in which they were punished and the way that they were tormented by Allah after they caused corruption upon the earth and they transgressed the boundaries of Allah and that is that Allah poured upon them these types of punishment, these severe types of punishment whether that was some type of punishment that befell them whether it was a severe wind or whether it was a type of earthquake or whether it was that they were, they, they were drowned. Each one of them required not a physical stick to hit them, but rather it refers to the pain of the torment that they felt. And that is because the pain of the stick is something which people remember, meaning that if someone is lashed and someone is beaten in that way severely, it's something which sticks with you. You remember that type of pain, right? And I think maybe some of us or maybe many of us can, can relate to that in the sense that if you went to you know, a Quran school as a child and you were in one of those schools where... Uh, you know, one of those classes where the teachers would hit you with a stick if you didn't know your Quran, you didn't memorize, you messed around, whatever it was. Those lashes, you can still kind of remember because they were extremely painful. And that is what Imam al says that it's referring to, refers to the pain that is being felt and refers to the severity of it because it is something which is extremely difficult to bear. And clearly when Allah says, Sawta Adab, His punishment subhanahu wa ta'ala is not like any type of stick or whip but rather it is the severest of, of punishments. And Ibn Kathir says something very similar, that Allah sent upon them severe punishments, and the severe punishments of Allah cannot be stopped or withheld from the people who deserve them, those who turn away from the path of Allah. I think this would be a good place to stop, inshallah ta'ala, uh, even though verse number 14 is still linked to this particular passage, but inshallah ta'ala, because of time, I think we will leave it till uh, till next week. Okay, let us um, let us see if we have any questions. Sumer is asking, I wonder if the biblical stories have any reference to Asiya alayhi salam. I don't know, to be honest. It's not something which I've looked into, but maybe it's something you can look into, inshallah, and, and let us know if you find something, if they refer to the wife of Pharaoh, especially if they refer to her as a believer, someone who followed uh, the Prophet Musa alayhi salam. Uh, do we know roughly how old Musa alayhi salam was when Asiya accepted Islam? 
it would seem in Allah knows best that this is after Musa comes with the message of Tawheed. So it's after Musa flees from Egypt and gets married in Madian and stays there for 10 odd years and then he returns to, uh, to Egypt once again. And so he would have been a, a man like in his full maturity. So exactly how old, we don't know because Allah or the Prophet didn't mention this. Rashid asks, what are the chances that Ramses was the pharaoh during the time of Prophet Musa? That is the name that is given to in, in the biblical terms to the pharaoh of Musa salam. And as I said, the Quran doesn't mention this either way. It doesn't affirm, doesn't negate. So it's possible. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Samir asks, given, given the pretext of referring tafsir back to an opinion from the Salaf of Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shaqeed who took the opinion of the pyramids, does it not open the door to other contemporary interpretations of the Quran? That's a very good question. And if you think about this, actually what Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin does is he bases his opinion upon the opinions of the Salaf. He just says that this is what he means in a context that we can understand. So he's not actually bringing an opinion outside of the opinions of the Salaf. One of the opinions of the Salaf was, as we mentioned, was that it's referring to structures that they had that they would use for entertainment or that they would use for shade. He's simply saying that the only structures that would have been able to give shade to a whole group of people and that people would have used as a place of honor or maybe a place of festival and greeting and so on would have been the pyramids. That's his position. But he's not going against what the Salaf said. He's not coming up with a left of field uh, position. Rather, he's saying that this is what it's referring to. And there are other examples of this that we will give, inshallah ta'ala, as we make our way through the tafsir where contemporary scholars have taken what is a well-known position of the Salaf. That's very different, by the way, to someone bringing a position and saying, you know, oh, it's got nothing to do with what the Salaf said. I just think it's going to be, I don't know, the uh, I don't know, the Eiffel Tower or something like that, right? It's completely, like, has nothing to do with what is being said. Uh, so he's not actually going against what the Salaf said. He's not bringing a different opinion, but rather he's interpreting one of those opinions in a way that he thinks makes sense. And that is di- very different to the other type would, which would simply be making tafsir with your own intellect. And that is why it is important to, and I'm glad you asked that question, it is extremely important when you read the works of these scholars that you understand exactly what they say because they're very precise in their wording. So you must also be very accurate and precise in your understanding. Uh, Sumaira, with regards to how far Arabs traveled, do we not have the famous narration of Tamim Madari where he sailed to some islands and so on? Yes, it's yes, we do have the narration of Tamim Madari that is in Sahih Muslim. Uh, but that he's like the exception. There's a few, uh, obviously, amongst the companions of the Arabs, people who traveled. Right? It said Hamza radiallahu anhu used to travel extensively. And that's why he's not around towards the beginning of Islam. When he comes back, Islam was already spread. And there's that famous incident that he comes back and he hears that Abu Jahl has been cursing the Prophet ﷺ and he becomes angry and he goes to him and he beats him and he says, how dare you, uh, you know, curse my, my nephew. And he says, well, are you on his religion? And he says, yes. And Hamza doesn't even know what's going on because it is said that Hamza was often away. So it's not that they didn't, but these are few people here and there, right? So just like, you know, you have in every, you know, you may have, for example, in a village, the vast majority of the village don't leave anywhere. It doesn't mean that everyone, not even one of them hasn't traveled. Some of them may have traveled. But we're talking about the general norm of the people. Ashfaq's asking regarding Pharaoh, is it one specific or does it refer to all of the leaders and people of ancient Egypt? So it's referring to one specific person. But the title Pharaoh obviously is an honorific that is given to the leader of Egypt. But in the story of Musa and in the Quranic, uh, in the Quranic context, it is referring to one Pharaoh a specific pharaoh, and that is the pharaoh of Musa alayhi salatu wassalam. Also, is there an opinion whether you should visit or not the pyramids and museums which display the mummies and the bodies of pharaohs? 
I mean, to go to simply like to visit a, a museum, I don't think that there is any problem with that, Allahu Alam, um, per se, uh, because they aren't places of, of destruction and punishment and so on. And, and it's not the only, you know, generally speaking, like if you go to a history museum, there's a lot of history in there. One of the exhibits may be, you know, like the, the like a body of a pharaoh or a mummy or something. But that's not the whole, like, uh, you know, that's not the whole idea behind uh, behind that. And and this is an issue of, of difference of opinion, as you will as you will know. Mustafa, did the peoples of Ad and Thamud oppress the weak? Yes. And their oppression of the weak, even if it is nothing other than the fact that they oppressed their prophets, their king, and their followers that believed in those prophets, then that is enough of oppression. So even if we don't know their of of, of their you know like um, and we generally know because Allah Azza wa Jal says uh, concerning the people of Ad that they were Jabbarin, that they were people of oppression. Jabbarin means people used to transgress, and so they used to oppress. But even if we didn't know that, whether Batashtum Batashtum Jabbarin, even if we didn't know that, the fact that they oppressed their prophets when they came. And those people who chose to follow those prophets is enough of oppression. Okay, barakallahu feek, inshallah ta'ala. We will stop here, bidnillah, for today. And inshallah ta'ala, next week we will continue with the tafsir of this surah. Barakallahu feekum, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.